Hello again. I'm Chris Mayer, and welcome back to the Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Before I get on to today's discussion on privatizing peace, I want to say a little bit about the current situation we find ourselves in, responding to the global pandemic. It is a very serious challenge. The response of the American people has been astounding. For the most part, I see Americans rising to the challenge, working together to develop and implement imaginative and innovative ways to work through quarantines and isolation, to keep schools and small businesses going, to provide effective volunteer efforts, and generally I see the commitment of the American people to prevail with hope and resolve. There are some fearmongers, some who can only complain. Unfortunately, news and social media gives these people a voice. But for those of us who are really listening, the overwhelming attitude is one of willing self-sacrifice, good humor, and a spirit of working together. This may be true in other countries too, and I hope it is. I can only speak, however, from what I see close to home, and what I see is very encouraging. In the past couple of years, and especially since the rise in action and counteraction between the United States and Iran over the past year, we hear and read a lot about proxy warfare. These proxies, it's claimed, allow major powers to conduct hybrid warfare without direct attribution to the major power. This deniability is also accompanied by a lack of accountability for either the major power or for the proxy. Better known proxies include Hezbollah acting for Iran, the Wagner Group operating for Russia, and Eric Prince's organizations, first working for the U.S. State Department and now perhaps for China and the United Arab Emirates. But war fighting and military capacity building are not the only roles proxies play on the world stage. They're also a means to enable peace building in post-conflict and fragile states. Joining me in this discussion is Mr. Doug Brooks, founder and president emeritus of the International Stability Operations Association. Good afternoon, Doug. Good afternoon. When you founded what is now the International Stability Operations Association, or ISOA, you named it the International Peace Operations Association. Why did you choose that name? You know, as I think you know, originally the, the entire focus of, uh, of the organization was, was Africa, was supporting peace operations in Africa. Um, and uh, we founded the organization, if, if you remember, in April of 2001, things in terms of where our operations of our companies were changed pretty dramatically in September of 2001. Uh, well, terminology changes over time, and peace operations was literally the term that we call stability operations these days. I think uh, stability operations is a more comprehensive phrase, and it was one that was ultimately adopted by the Department of Defense, I think, and the Department of State. So uh, I guess it was 2010 we changed IPOA to ISOA, from IPOA to ISOA, to kind of keep up with the time. Whether it's called peace operations or stability operations today, the goal is still the same, and especially when we're talking about operations in Africa. We don't seem to be overly engaged as the United States and Africa, maybe we should be, but the United Nations certainly is. And isn't this activity, your, your companies, the ISOAS companies, the international peace operations, international stability operations, isn't that kind of usurping the role of international organizations such as the United Nations or the African Union? I would say 
quite the opposite. Essentially, these companies provide capacity to the militaries that actually do these kinds of operations. And it doesn't really matter if the military is a Western military or an African military or from wherever, from Bangladesh or whatever. It's actually the, the companies that you hire to support these operations are doing things that uh, the military either is unable to do itself or can't do as well as the private sector can. So it, it basically takes a, uh, a reasonably capable military and makes it a far more capable military that's able to do uh, uh, operate expeditionary operations essentially you know, beyond its borders. So militaries that normally couldn't operate, you know, they don't have the transportation, they don't have logistics or things to, to operate in a peacekeeping mission are able to do that because they have private resources able to, to make that happen. Well, at first it began to sound like you were not so much a peace operations association as a war-making operations association until you specified that it was for the peacekeeping, support the peacekeeping operations. We have to be really clear that essentially we, these companies are working for somebody else. They don't make the policies, but they support the policies, and they try to make the policies more successful. Don't your companies well, also yeah. support, support other uh, non-military functions? Um, yeah, well, uh, absolutely. I mean, any. I think this is something that's especially grown in the uh, in recent years. So, where, for example, on the state building side, um, you know, building up court systems, and legal systems, and training lawyers and stuff. That's stuff that governments used to do, you know, a couple of decades ago. But now you have companies that specialize in that sort of thing, training up prison guards because you need those when you're rebuilding a state or building stock markets. I mean, there are companies that will literally be able to bring in the expertise from around the world to make that sort of thing happen. So, yeah, I mean, it's about state building, too. You, we generally, you're absolutely right, we generally do focus on the military aspect of uh, international intervention. But there's a whole lot more that goes to goes with it, and this is a, an area of growth for our industry. One of the things that I think makes IPOA, ISOA stand out is its commitment to a code of conduct. How do you see this as uh, providing value added to peace operations? Uh, value to the governments or value to the companies or value to everyone else in the area of operation. So having a code of conduct, when we initially created the code of conduct, it was, was written by, as you know this, I mean, it was written by NGOs, it was written by human rights specialists, academics, and they basically said, here's what we want private companies doing to support peace operations. Here's what we don't want them doing. And I actually, this was put together years ago when I was an academic in Sierra Leone during the war there. We, we sort of hammered these rules out. And my idea as an academic was to take these rules to various uh, security companies and logistics companies and support companies, get their feedback, and then we sort of hammer out a compromised document. But one thing that was really remarkable was all these companies that I took these rules to uh, said, these are fine, don't change a word. And so when we founded the association, that those rules became the uh, original code of conduct. And we updated it, I think, 10 times or 13 times. And every time we'd update it, we'd bring in more feedback from the international community, from the human rights organization, lawyers, and everybody, basically saying, okay, here's the changes or the other issues we've seen in the field that, uh, that we want to see incorporated into the code of conduct. And the industry is very supportive of this. The industry is basically like if you're doing your job right, you're not violating international law, you're not, you're not creating war crimes, you, you, you know, there's a whole lot of things that, that you should be doing correctly and, and operating as a normal company, and there's a whole lot of things you shouldn't be. But this basic agreement between the industry, the human rights community, governments on exactly how private companies should operate. 
Well, it certainly sounds like it's the right thing to do, but the right thing to do often isn't the easy thing to do, and I want to come back to that a little bit later. Right now, I want to go back to the fact that ISOA's member companies aren't the only ones operating out there. And I'm thinking about how uh, China's Belt Road Initiative is going forth and uh, the activities of Russian firms getting involved in Central Africa, focusing on Africa where uh, ISOA originally had its primary focus. So in the idea of proxy warfare, which uh, these series of podcasts are primarily about warfare, The U.S. uses other national forces and non-state groups, such as contractors, instead of U.S. military forces, against other major powers, such as Russia and Iran. In turn, these proxy military forces avoid direct confrontation by U.S. military forces or with the uh, opposing uh, geopolitical players. This often results in proxies fighting proxies. Do you see similar competition in proxy peace operations? Boy, that's an interesting question. I don't in general. Um, so in some cases, uh, you have companies that are, are carrying out direct policies of their government and in a sense are almost uh, pseudo-governmental organizations. I don't know if you remember Bob Denard from, uh, from decades ago, who basically was a, a French agent involved in overthrowing countries and whatever else. Um, so that, there was that in the past. Now, when you're talking about stability operations or peace operations, for example, China may want to see a successful stability operation in South Sudan where they have uh, some commercial operations. Uh, and so they may be willing to help support it with their own companies. And so in a sense, it's helping the international peace operation, but also has a very direct positive impact on their on their own commercial operations in the country. But nevertheless, I think... It, I mean, any company that operates in these areas should be a member of of the association, especially if they plan to get work uh, beyond essentially the the work that's spoon-fed by their own government. In other words, if you're a Chinese company and you want to start uh, supporting a peace operation with the UN, you should be able to have a – the company should be operating in such a way that somebody else may want to hire it, whether it's an NGO, whether it's another government saying, hey, look, this Chinese logistics is cheaper than American logistics. That should always be an option, and companies should all be operating on the same basic professional level, and that's one thing that ISOA and the, the Code of Conduct does. It just says, here's our baseline minimums. You know, we're going to be doing everything the right way, and if you're not operating at that level, then you shouldn't be in this industry. So in this session, Doug Brooks and I introduced some of the ways that contractors are supporting peace operations in post-conflict and fragile states, and the commitment of the corporate members of one industry association the International Stability Operations Association, to provide effective and ethical support to governments and international organizations. In the next podcast, Doug and I will continue the conversation, touching on some challenges to the ethical provision of these services and what might be done about it. Please join us for that.